Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Catherine D. DeAngelis, Dr. Kathy D., Dr. D., or you may also know her as Jama Mama. Dr. DeAngelis is a University Distinguished Service Professor Emerita, Professor of Pediatrics Emerita, Professor of Health Policy and Management at our Bloomsburg School of Public Health, and Editor-in-Chief Emerita of JAMA. She was the first woman and first pediatric editor for JAMA. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, Dr. D? I'm doing just fine, thank you. And I want to make sure people heard you right. I am the distinguished, not extinguished professor, okay? Yes. Yes, those of you... (laughs) Who don't know Kathy D has a sense of humor. I started laughing right as we recorded this because I said, okay, Kathy, we're ready to go. Let me take a sip of water. And right as I introduced her, started talking, she said, are you sure that's water? Yes, distinguished, (laughs) not extinguished. Folks, you have to read her book, Pursuing Equity in Medicine, One Woman's Journey. All proceeds go to charity. It is her fascinating life story. Dr. D, tell us how someone who has been held hostage by Chechen rebels and hit by a Chicago CTA bus is, happens to be so joyful and so full of life. I'll put it in perspective. My smart aleck staff at JAMA, which is where, where I was working when I was hit by the bus, uh, told everybody that they said, Dr. D hit a bus. So it was, you know, down from there. Uh, look, I'm uh, in a couple of months, I'm going to be 80 years young, and I don't feel much different than I did even 20, 30 years ago, except it takes me a little longer to, to get up and walk around uh, before the kinks get out. Everything else is fine, and I'm just, I'm just happy to be alive. And I've had such a wonderful life and met such terrific people along the way that why should I not be joyful? That's right. Well, friends out there in podcast world, Kathy in her book, Pursuing Equity in Medicine, talks, it's her whole life story, and it really is fascinating. I stayed up after 11 o'clock last night reading it, which is big for me since I'm normally in bed around 9 o'clock. But she talks about the four (laughs) essential T's for any leader, tough-mindedness, tenacity, thick skin, and tender heart. And let's, I just want to kind of keep that as a backdrop, but I wanted to ask Dr. D to talk to us about how she got into academic affairs when she was in pediatrics. And Kathy, if you could walk us through that, that first transition, you know, the big transition from being a faculty member into that uh, first dean role, and then how that kind of transition out of that adding on to that. Well, first of all, I got to tell you that uh, you know, everything I did prior to returning to Hopkins, I did my fellowship, my residency at Hopkins, and then I did some other things for a while in preparation to come back to Hopkins. And at the time uh, that, that I went over to the dean's office, uh, I was the uh, uh, I was the director, the founding director of general pediatrics adolescent medicine, the whole division. And I was also the residency director. And uh, because pediatrics had two members uh, for the faculty council, which met with the uh, dean every month, the faculty council was the 
chairs of every department, but medicine and pediatrics, because of the number of, of faculty we had, had two members. So I was the second member for pediatrics, but that meant I was the only woman sitting around the table except for the secretary. So, you know, if you're going to ask me to serve someplace, I'm not going to keep my mouth shut if I have something to say. What Apparently, was that, somebody Kelly? it was in the 80s, yes. And I, I was there for a couple of years. And, and what happened was uh, about 1989, uh, there was a new dean, uh, Mike Johns, and uh, he had noticed that. I would keep handing things to uh, the chair of pediatrics uh, and I'd I'd hand him questions to ask. And sometimes I'd ask them, but usually I'd let him ask or somebody would ask something and I'd, I'd I'd pass him a note and then he could answer it. And Mike, who was chair of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and then became the dean said he noticed that I kept doing that. So he asked if, if I would be willing to come over and be the then senior associate dean of academic affairs. Well, that's seven offices, everything to do with education, uh, a bunch of assistant deans and me. Well, I was there about a little over a month. And the person who was the uh, senior associate dean for faculty, uh, he hated it. And what they what they all noticed was that, see, I, I'm a Eucharistic minister, so I would go to Mass every morning at 7 o'clock, and the chapel was in the hospital right across from the cafeteria. So people would know that I'd leave about 7.30, so they'd, they'd sort of amble beside me, and they'd say, um, Dr. D, can I walk you over to your office? And then they'd tell me about some problem, and... I, you know, most of the time I could figure out how to help them. And so Mom knew this, who was the then uh, faculty senior associate dean, and Mike knew this. So Mike said, look, would you be willing to also take on being the senior associate dean of faculty? Uh, he said, you're doing it now. I said, well, yeah, of course. And about a couple months later, I became the vice dean. I was promoted. Um no increase in salary, of course, but and not for becoming fact, adding faculty and not for the promotion. But I really didn't care about that. And at the time, I was paid very well, so I didn't care. But uh, what happened was at that point, faculty affairs was me and my administrative assistant. And we also handled all academic affairs. So it was it was kind of a joke in a way. But on the other hand, it was easy because I didn't have to involve 10,000 people or five or six or eight or 10 people. The buck stopped with me. Mm-hmm. And so if I couldn't handle a problem, I went down to the dean's office and I'd tell him what the problem was. And he'd say, well, how, how should we survive, uh, answer this problem? And I'd tell him, he said, well, go do it. So it was much easier than, of course, things have become much more complex now. And of course, much more is being done now. But one of the things was uh, just before I be- I went over to the dean's office, the previous dean had asked me uh, if, if 
I would look at a report that was given to him by the provost that showed that women were paid less than men. And he said, uh, the provost said, I got to do something about this, which means I've got to present this to the department chairs, all guys, of course. And I looked at it and I said, well, this is a flawed uh, a flawed research project because they didn't make a lot of allowances for, uh, you know, pediatricians don't get paid as much as surgeons and there are far more women pediatricians than surgeons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said, well, can you fix it? I said, I can try. I said, I'm going to tell you right now, I'll, with, with your permission, I'll meet with all the department chairs, get their input so they know it's, I'm not trying to sneak anything in. They can add or subtract whatever they want. But I'm going to tell you right now that while the process will be different, the outcome's going to be the same. And I will only do this if you promise that if we find that women are paid less than men, that you'll fix it. He said, I give you my word. And that was enough. And of course, I found that women were paid less than men, making all the, all the, yeah, all, all the things that needed to be done. Like I had to go pediatrician with pediatrician and surgeon with surgeon, et cetera, et cetera. And professor with professor by rank. And so it's interesting because he did that. And I spent $2 million I said to, to him, make that right. Yeah. It took over $2 million for him to do it. It took him over two years, but, but by, after two years, there was equity in salary. And I did it. I spent one weekend every year that I was there. I was in the dean's office 10 years because I, I continued doing that when I went over as the, uh, as the vice dean. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when I left to, to go to JAMA in 2000, I went over to the dean's office in 1990. And in 2000, when I went to Chicago for, to, to be the editor-in-chief of JAMA, there was salary equity, period. That was it. But going back to 19, actually 89, one of the things I knew and I found and I had data to show that women were not being promoted at the same rate as men. So by this time, I was in the dean's office, and I said to the dean, I want, I showed him the data. I said, we've got to do something about this. His daughter was a medical student at the time. And so, of course, he was anxious to do it. Yeah, I always said that we could solve this problem immediately if every every dean and every man dean and, and department chair had a daughter who was in medical school. It's much easier to talk to the men or, or their wife was a, a physician. Right. And anyhow, anyhow, just before I went over to the Dean's office, my husband and I went to Africa and uh, did a safari. And I'm like the day before we left, I'm thinking, how the heck am I going to, how am I going to get women promoted? What are we going to do? There were only about, maybe 14 of us who were professors at the time at, at still at Hopkins. And so we went up in a, a hot air balloon and I had noticed that elephants, elephants are fascinating, absolutely fascinating creatures. Did you know that if a bull elephant is in trouble, 
he he gave us a call, and all the female, all the the women ele- 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 elephants surround him and protect him from uh, the poachers. That sounds familiar. <laughs> Anyhow, only because but I, I read know, it in your book. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Well, it's interesting because every morning, uh, you know, I noticed that the. The, the female elephants, usually with one and sometimes two little ones, would come together and they'd form a herd. And then in the evening, they'd sort of go off in their own place. And by sundown, there was no more herd and each of the elephants went someplace. So as we're, I'm thinking about how, what am I going to do to get women promoted? And we're up in the balloon over the Maasai Mara, and I'm looking down, and I see this high grass, and it's moist, of course, because it's early in the morning. I see the elephants and the little ones starting to come together. And I look down in the grass, and I said to my husband, I said, you know, honey, I am stupid. Look down there. He said, what? I said, it's a network. He said, (laughs) Uh, I said, we need a network. He said, okay. Uh, and he didn't know what I was talking about. He's fine. But anyway, well, so yeah, I that, came back. I was just going to say, that's, Go ahead. That, that's two, let me, that's just two, two lessons I want to call to people's attention so far in the middle of the story is that, uh, first of all, you took a vacation. You took a break. You said you were two weeks in Africa and that taking some right. time away to clear your mind change your frame and your lens and your way of looking things, all of a sudden, some things might appear to you like a herd of elephants may change and help the way we think about things. And the other thing, the other thing before you finish your story, I want you to weave in, remind people, because this is hysterical. This is exactly what you've done now in two examples of gender equity with salary and with promotion is the DeAngelis rule of ordering drug tests. Diagnostic test. So I want oh. you to tell, share that rule because you implemented oh. your rule perfectly in both of these scenarios. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> for, for, first of all, I, I have to tell you that, you know, salary equity was absolutely essential. But you want me to tell about the when I, I, I love to teach. And when I was teaching uh, residents and medical students, uh, when we were ordering tests, because I said, it's ridiculous to order all these tests. You don't need them all. You, you just use your head and use your hands and your knowledge. But if you're going to order a test, I want you to think of the following. Ordering a diagnostic test or any test is like picking your nose in public. You have to think, what are you going to do if you find something? Yeah. And that rule, <laughs> I have people come up to me now when I go to meetings, and, and they're my former students, or they're, they're the, the, the SIDS, they're the children of my former students, and they come up to me and ask me, is that really the DeAngelis rule? I said, well, I guess it's become the DeAngelis rule. Right. I don't know. That's, I love it. But, what are you going to do if you find yeah, something? Yeah. And you found something, that, and you that, made sure, you made sure they that did you something know, about it. Yeah, you have to decide what are you going to do with it. Okay. The other thing is the importance of downtime and recreation. Right. Now, I 
that was the only two week vacation I ever took all the time I was a dean. But, Don't say that. But, That's ten years. No, no. Listen, listen to the but. Okay. But I did a lot of meetings, and so what I would do is uh, the, the meetings uh, wherever we'd go, and my husband could usually accompany me, or sometimes I'd accompany him to meetings, and we'd add a couple days that were just, that was my vacation. Okay. I took the vacation days as, you know, at least three days. Three was the minimum. Okay. So, but I never, I didn't take, I never took two weeks, although I, Two weeks is a good time to do it. Later on, I I would do that. But when I was discovering and, and, and starting new initiatives, I would do the three-day minimum, uh, three to four days hooked on to yeah. some business thing. Yeah, that because it worked out better. Right. But you have to take time to just, you know, relax your brain. And, and you'd be amazed that you see things that you never would if you're so intent on problem solving. That's right. I, you know, so that's, that's what's important. So back to your story. So, when I, before I interrupted you, you're in the hot air balloon. You tell your husband, I'm so stupid. It's about community. What did you then do? No, no, no. You it's, jumped it's, out it's of the about, balloon. It's about network. Oh, networking. <laughs> you got to form a network. Yeah. So I came back to Hopkins. And I got the, I think there were 12 or 14 of us women professors. Uh, I had a, a lunch for us. And I said, look, we've got to get women promoted. And so I said, we've got to work together. Each of us are going to take two associate professor women, two each, and we're going to mentor them. And in addition to that, once a month, I would have a luncheon for associate professor women who could get away, who were, who didn't have a mentor. And I would meet with them and, and go over their CVs one at a time over, over a period of time. And we'd start to work with them and, and help them to know what they should and shouldn't do in order to get promoted. I also, uh, spoke to the, uh, associate professors promotion committee, but I had been the chair of that committee for several years uh, just before I went to the dean's office. So that wasn't where the biggest problem was. The biggest problem was at the professor level. So I went and met with the professors committee and I really, you know, laid it down to them and said, look, if you don't promote women at the, uh, to be professors, you're just throwing away half the creativity and intellect that we have here at Hopkins. Now, I'm not saying to, to, that you should ever promote anyone who doesn't deserve it, but you also need to look at women and men with equity. Mm -hmm. I didn't say equality because we're not equal. Women are better than men in some things, and men are better than women in some things. But equity is extremely important. Equity, uh, equity means that you're looking, uh, you're fair and impartial, and you're free from bias or favoritism. And I kept repeating that to them. And then uh, 
what started to happen was that we started to get women promoted. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went there, there were, uh, well, <laughs> you were the 12th really, woman promoted in 1985. Was, you were, it, yeah, we just finished yeah, 125 19, years of birthday of School of Medicine. And in 85, you were the 12th, only the 12th woman professor. Tw- and then in 99, you, you, we had 58 women. Yeah, we did. When I left, we had 58 and we had a pile in the pipeline. And the thing is, I was the 12th, but I was only the Second, who was a clinical uh, professor and did clinical research. Oh, wow. Number two, okay? Wow. And that was 94 years of, of Hopkins. Wow. So clearly we needed to do stuff. So, you know, that, that's, how we wor- that's how we worked at it. Yeah. Well, Kathy, uh, Kathy we, you know, you talked about at the professorial level and I'm sure this is the same case that um, many of the folks listening on the on the podcast right now. How did you educate the department directors or department chairs about getting women through the departmental level to even get to the school promotions committee? Well, first I worked with the women and I said, look, one of the problems is you're spending a lot of time on committees that will get you nothing for promotion. Like, why don't you serve on this committee that has to do with education? Because everybody wants to prof- everybody wants to be a professor, but nobody wants to profess. Right. I mean, it just drives me nuts. So I said, if and they said, well, what are we going to do? We can't say no. I said, no, no, no. You don't say no exactly. Women. They're, they're, you know, women are great at saying no, but sometimes you have to know how to say no. Uh-huh. A certain way, certain times it's no, but other times, like uh, in in this case, I said, look, if if your department chair asked you to serve on this education committee that nobody cares about, um, you say, look, I I'd really be happy to do that, but I'll do it if you also put me on a different committee. And the other committee has to do with promotions or money. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. In or, your book, or, you say or, he, he or she who controls the gold rules. And I wrote that's that. That's it. I that's like the that. golden. Control the gold. That's the golden rule. That's the golden rule. He who rules the gold rules. <laughs> or he who has the gold rules. So, uh, it, it, so that worked to, to some degree. The other thing is sometimes, uh, you know, women would come to me and they'd say, look, I just can't seem to whatever. Or one of the women professors would say, look, I just can't get her department chair to whatever. So I'd go and I'd have lunch with the department chair. And uh, we'd have a nice little talk. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I got along pretty well with everybody. And, uh, some, you know, you have to have a sense of humor sometimes. And, you know, being in the dean's office, you could uh, you could parlay some things that, that some of these guys wanted for their department. And, uh, you know, you're nice to me, then I'm going to be nice to you, too. You're nice to me by promoting this woman who deserves to be promoted. And... 
Yeah, you wanted that uh, that extra what twenty five thousand or thirty thousand dollars for that piece of equipment. Uh, I suppose I talked to the dean about that for you. You see what I mean? I, I, I'm sorry. I, I I come. I grew up poor, okay, and I and I have uh, I'm an Italo American, okay. We know how to make deals, <laughs> but they have to be honest deals, right? The, you know. I'm just and, laughing. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking of the story you wrote in the book, the Pursuing Equity in Medicine book, where you talk about where you were in JAMA in the in the building in Chicago, and you folks in your staff wanted to move cubicles or have higher cubicle walls, and, oh. and how you finagled this <laughs> kind of backdoor, kind of wink and a nod. You were made aware of when they were delivered, but the guy was trying yeah. to like not give them to you, and then you said, oh, I know they were delivered, so bring them on up, and <laughs> you just kind of know how to... You know how to make things happen, and then I think that just so well, important. To, figure that out. How to have yeah, you got to figure it out. You've got to know people. You got to take take the time to to figure out people to to know what makes them tick. And some people you have to be a little tougher with. Other people you just can be as mellow as can be. And and you know, but but it's 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 the 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 mode of the deal. How do you get people to do what they need to do that's important? Mm-hmm. I, w- I wish our Congress right now would, uh, somebody would learn that, but uh, we- we'll see. If, but you, you, you'll get nowhere if you just let everything be the way it is. Mm-hmm. Nothing will change. Right. And if you're going to change, then, uh, you know, that's why I tell people you, you started out with those five Ps. It took me a while to come up with, you know, what were those those T's? And I, you know, and I, I talked to people about tenacity. I can't tell you how many times I was, uh, people said no, or I didn't get a, a grant. Uh, uh, I didn't get the money in the grant, or I didn't get something published the first time or the second time or whatever. But if you if you're tenacious, and you have something that you know is important, you keep at it. And the tough-mindedness, not tough, but tough-mindedness means uh, that you hold on to an idea as long as you believe it's good, no matter how hard that might be. You stick with it. The thick skin is the hardest thing for women because we personalize everything. Mm-hmm. And you just can't do that. And But the easier thing is the fourth T, which is you have to have a tender heart. That's right. And the tender, the tender heart is essential because you got to forgive those SOBs who made you the target, <laughs> which is the biggest T, you know. Well, and, you know, can you, t- can you help us understand a little bit more how, especially you, you think about balancing that tender heart with thick skin. So the salty, the sweet, the, the tough-mindedness, but the tenderness. You talk in your book about you you are so um, laser focused and so the tenacious Dr. D and you are really so single minded and laser beam when you want something. But then you have that playful side. You talk about how you would, you know, blast the William Tell overture in the JAMA offices, holler out everybody on your horses and let's go. And you'd all tromp around like you're on a ride in a horse and having such fun. And yet, People still take you seriously. So how how do you manage to do that? Can you teach that? Can we learn that? Because I also 
sometimes feel like I'm not taken seriously because I have kind of a a silly edginess kind of dry humor. And so I never know how or where to use that, but you seem to do that with ease and people just, when you walk into a room, people light up because you just have that humor. Was it, was it the sisters of no mercy who, who made you this way? How do you figure this out? No, actually I was, I never went to a parochial school. What? <laughs> I just teased it. I was trained by the Sisters of No Mercy. <laughs> See, it's part of my joke. It's, I, you know, I learned very early on that, I mean, I love jokes. And, and you'd be amazed. The Jewish comedians are masters because... Almost every one of their jokes or their stories, there's a lesson behind it. Mm -hmm. They make you laugh, but they make you think. And so I learned, I learned, and I'm a kind of somewhat of a mimic. So I can do different accents. And, and sometimes that helps you if you, if you're dealing with someone from a different culture and you can do something with them in their culture. You make a friend immediately. And if you can tell a joke uh, and you can share a joke it, it, that, it, that's pertinent to their their background or their culture, mm-hmm. it, you, there's a bond that forms. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you to this day, every single day I said, people send me jokes from all over the world. Uh, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't get a joke on my email. But I, I send jokes every day to, you know, different groups of people Be, because I think you have to laugh. Uh, yeah. And but it but it also forms a bond with people mm-hmm. and it shows a side to you. I mean, I, I'll, one of the things that that just floored me, I'd been married about, oh, I don't know, 10 years, maybe, <laughs> no, I guess about 20, 20 at that point. And I went to the grocery store, but I was in the dean's office then. I had just gone into the dean's office. And uh, it was my husband's birthday. So they had these balloons, you know, I love you balloons. So I bought one and I was walking out with the groceries. And one of the faculty, one guy who was an older man, came up to me and he said, he said, what's that balloon? I said, it's for my husband. And I laughed. He said, I'm amazed. I said, at what? He said, I didn't think you were like that. I said, like what? <laughs> he said, he said, that's so sweet. I said, are you telling me I'm not sweet? And he looked at me and I laughed and he laughed. He said, you know, I apologize. Oh well, I God. got in the car and I thought, oh my goodness, because, because one of the things he said to me was, People, he said, people have told me to not cross you. I said, what do you mean, not cross me? They said, because you you can be really serious if somebody does something really bad. I said, well, but most people don't deliberately do something really bad. But if someone does deliberately do something that they shouldn't be doing and they know they shouldn't be doing it and I ask them not to do it and they do it. I said, yeah, I can be really tough, not mm-hmm. tough minded. I could be tough. Mm-hmm. I said, but that's not who I am. And he said, 
I realized that. He said, that's a great balloon. He said, I'm going to tell my wife about this. I said, go tell her. I'll call her and tell her if you want. That's cute. But, but see, it's just your persona. And I was shocked that he thought that, but he didn't know me at all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, and we get to be our, our level, the leadership presence and the characteristics that people uh, put on us and have assumptions about how we are to be or to behave. And that that divulging or letting people into your personal side can be very, you know, eye-opening. And, oh, I had no idea. But I love the way you marry the joy, joyfulness, and humor with a serious position and, and, and positions of huge authority and tremendous power and influence. Yeah, but you see, you can't, you could never use power for power's sake. Mm-hmm. You use the power to, to to do things that need to be done. And, and you know, one thing that one of the joys of growing older is I, I'm a hugger. I mean, I probably am of Italian uh, descent. And Italians hug. The men hug. They hug each other. The women hug. They hug each other. And when I was younger, I had to be careful, you know, who who I would hug and that people who got to know me, I hug all the time. And I, you just made me think I'm on the uh, advisory uh, board for the government uh, accountability office. And yesterday uh, we had our annual meeting. Now these people sitting around the table, I have no idea how I got there because, you know, John Glenn was on it. Connie Morello, the congressperson, people like that are on that. Yet every man who came in came up to me and gave me a hug. Every one of them. And I'm thinking, that that song is just perfect for me. And then I thought, maybe they hug all the women, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, I think there's a persona you have. And I guess once people know you, then you can use it. Yeah. And uh, you got to be... You got to be careful if you're a woman and you're younger. Right. You got to be careful about hugging. But I it's, said it's I, one I, of the jokes. I agree with you. And I we teach you know the Myers Briggs type inventory in our leadership programs, and when we talk about extroverts or introverts, and I always give people the example that I'm an off the chart e extrovert, and my instinct as well is just to hug everybody. And I finally had to have someone, one of my inner circle women friends finally said, Kim, you really got to back off. You're, um, some, you're freaking some people out because they see you coming and some of their eyes bug out of their head. So I, I had to learn over the past couple decades to recalibrate my hugginess, but it just sometimes it bubbles out of me because that is my nature to be um, also a huggy, lovey person. And the example was not this past weeks, this week's um, advisory board of our medical faculty. That here at Hopkins, the ABMF is where all the department directors, chair people right. meet every month with right. the dean. And, and Hopkins at this moment in time is, um, we're under a little bit of financial duress, to put it nicely. And um, mm-hmm. I got into the, I walk into the ABMF and there's our dean, Paul Rothman, at the head of the table getting ready for the meeting. And I just I didn't even think about it because it was the first meeting that was right. It was the first meeting since the summer break. They'd take a couple months off of the summer. So I hadn't seen him and I, and I come walking up to him and, 
And I'm singing school days, school days, dear old golden rule days. And I just, like it was starting school and I was happy. Hey, we're back in the ABMF in the, in the Mary Elizabeth Garrett boardroom. And I walk up to him and grab him and kiss him on the cheek. And as I'm doing it, I realized in horror what I was doing. And, and I looked around the table and you should have seen these like department directors looked at me like, dun, dun, dun. What did she just do? <laughs> but fortunately, Paul knows me and he was laughing. Yeah. And I said, happy to be back at school. He's like, oh, yeah, right. But that you have to be <laughs> careful, though, sometimes. But I think, fortunately, people will know that, that sometimes that bubbles out of me uncontrollably. But it's tough, especially as a woman. I guess as a man, too, to know when you're safe in this environment, especially this, this culture these days. Oh, yeah. That. Well, you, you know, I wanted to... I, I, I want to tell you one thing that, that I think will be helpful to, to any women who, who are listening. Um, one, I've got to tell you, excuse me a minute. Jim, will you please get that? <laughs> I'm sorry. We get these crazy calls and you can't shut them up. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> but he's got to pick up the phone. But he's totally, in the I'm totally room. leaving that in the podcast. This is because this is real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry about that, people. But I'm a human being. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I got to tell you how we got the first woman chair of a major department at Hopkins. Okay. I, I was. Uh, that's Julie Freischlag. Yeah, surgery. And it was the chair of surgery of all things. Okay. So I went. I was already at at uh, at JAMA, but I was still in constant contact with with women. I was still mentoring them uh, at at mostly at Hopkins, and uh, so they were looking at uh, someone. Uh, John Cameron was stepping down, and of course, he had his people, his guy that he wanted to be in there, and so the committee. Was they were interviewing all kinds of people, and uh, I I said uh, to the people who were on the committee, a couple of the women, I said, "Have you? Are you? Isn't Julie Freischlag on that list?" And they said, "Yeah, but we can't get them to uh, uh, to, to to really look seriously." And of course, it was just in the beginning of the thing. And I said, "Look." Um, why don't each of you women remember what I taught you about if you're on a committee, you always make sure you, I always put at least three women. You don't put one because that's token. Two, if they disagree, you just negate it at woman input. But if you have three, you know, you at least have uh, some representation. But I said, what you do is each woman take a different man on the committee and work with him. And now you have the double the number of votes. So that's what they did. And uh, I said to them, well, yeah. And I said to them, don't just say you're not going to, you're not going to vote until you at least interview her because she is dynamite. Okay. Now, I had known that she had been offered the chair of surgery at the University of Michigan. And the dean there, when he made the announcement, all the surgeons, the, the professors, came to his office and said, if she comes here, we're all going to resign. And he reneged. He reneged. 
Well, I'd like to tell you what I said to him. I saw him about a month later. And it's the sorriest thing he ever did because every time he sees me, he tells me how stupid he was. But anyway, uh, the, the women did that. They interviewed her. She was clearly the best candidate. And they said that's who they wanted. And they had enough votes because the guys went along with it. And a couple of the guys just on their own said they saw that she was the best. Now, Ed Miller, who was the dean, could have reneged, except he had a daughter in medical school. (laughs) And, okay, and so he hired her. And it was spectacular. Uh But, yeah, but not only that, but when she came, Julie and I are very good friends. In fact, uh, I'm going to Wake Forest uh, on Monday on her board. She's uh, the CEO uh, and the uh, executive uh, vice president and dean of the medical school and president of the hospital there. But she, uh, she, she said she'd been there about two weeks. And the residents, all guys, came to her and said, uh, we don't. We don't think that uh, you should be here, and we really uh, we we don't want to be here uh, if you're if you're the chair. And she said, "Oh, okay." She said, "That's fine." She said, "Just let me know, but I need to know within a week if you're going to leave because I have a whole bunch of people." And she was that she had been uh, in California. She said who are dying to come here with me as, as residents, because they were my residents not before I came here. Wow. Not one of them came forward. Not one. Mm-hmm. And yet she, she went on to be just a tremendous success. I mean, she went from there to be dean at UC Davis and, and now even a bigger uh, dean at Wake Forest. Right. Not only dean, but president. And but you see, this is what you have to do. Of course, now there there are several women who are who are department chairs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you. The, you the all, thing, I'm sorry. I, I just have to, I just have to say one other thing because you have to decide what it is you want to make you happy. And I always said, don't ever make a decision strictly on money. And don't only go after titles. I have never been a department chair. I've been offered, oh God, at least six or seven. I've never been a dean. I was offered four. I never took any of them because what I was doing was uh, made me happier. Mm. And maybe that's part of the joy. Now, for for other people, that that's what they want, and you should do that. Go go after what you want to make you happy, but don't go after titles and money because that's not unless money makes you happy or the title makes you happy. If that if that's what makes you happy, then go after it. Hmm. But we know that those things are fleeting: titles and money. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and there's one other thing. Every night. Before I go to bed, I think, what did I do today that defines who I think I am? And if I can't think of anything that day that, that you know, if I define myself as being a pretty decent person and I can't find anything I did that day 
that puts me in that category. And I do that two days in a row. I say, you better change who you think you are. Ooh, but it keeps you, you up. Or change what you do. That's it. Change what you do. Wow. That's it. It keeps you on track. You I can't fool it. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> My Polish sister. I love it. I love it. This has been such... There is so much about Moja droga, ja się kołem. Jak się masz? That's about the extent of my Polish. (laughs) My godmother was This is wonderful, Kathy. I I can't tell you how much the audience is going to love this. I cannot wait to get this out there and have folks listen to it. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to this, how we've gone from elephants and networking to... Uh, I don't know, Chechen rebels and and buses and tenacity and thick skin and tender heart and tough mindedness. If you'd like to hear uh, Kathy D, Dr. D, come to your place or ha- talk to her some more or invite her to your institution, just, you know, leave a note on Faculty Factory website. Let me know. And um, this has just been great, Dr. D. We really appreciate your time. And until next time, folks, we'll see you back on the Faculty Factory podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.